The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before listening to the podcast. New episodes air Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on FX. Once an illegal is in position in an operational country, it becomes a great problem to train them in new technology. Because an illegal spy is probably the most valuable resource that an intelligence service could ever have, and they need to protect them at all costs. And welcome to Slate's TV Club Insider Podcast for Season 4 of The Americans, where today we'll be discussing Episode 11, Dinner for Seven. I'm June Thomas, a writer and editor at Slate, and I'm the host of this podcast, which takes you behind the scenes of the show. I'm in Slate's New York studio with Joe Weisberg, the creator of the show. Hello, Joe. June. And his co-showrunner and co-executive producer, Joel Fields. Hi, Joel. Hey, June. And today we're going to be talking with H. Keith Melton, a writer and collector who specializes in the history and evolution of spy tech and who has served as a consultant on the show. Hi, Keith. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk with you. <laughs> Good. Um, Can I add something to the intro? Yeah. I don't want to seem no, like that please. wasn't a great intro, no, but I, I got to say something about Keith. Keith is, I think, probably undoubtedly in the entire world, the greatest expert on intelligence, on the KGB, and on illegals. Nobody anywhere knows more than him. He also happens to have this incredible collection of memorabilia, of pieces, of tradecraft things, of items, of everything the KGB has ever used. And all our stuff in the show that we use comes from him. But it's really his head, which contains more information about tradecraft, intelligence, and all these topics than anybody. But I'm going to jump in and give you an <laughs> example, okay? So uh, when we were working on the story about Kimberly Breland and her father, who worked at the Afghan task force in the CIA and playing out that whole story. We wanted to figure out what kind of recorder would go into the briefcase. And we have several emails and phone calls and discussions with Keith. And he starts to explain the technology of a certain kind of wire recorder that the KGB had perfected around around that time and the incredible technology that represented in the amount of information and hours that they could get onto this wire spool recorder. So we wrote that in. And then we reached out to him uh, to ask how our prop guy might recreate it so that we could use it. And his response was, well, you can just borrow mine. Just don't break it. <laughs> the other great thing is that Keith will explain all that because we never really a lot of this stuff gets very technical mm -hmm. and we don't understand it. And Keith will explain it like four or five times really nicely until we get it. So, Keith, how did you come about all this knowledge and all this uh, massive collection? Well, first of all, thank you for those those comments. It, it's very nice to work with a, a team that wants to produce such a great product, and it's a, it's a collaborative effort. But in answer, I, I'm a historian and writer, and I have, uh, from some 40 years, been traveling the world looking for obscure bits of intelligence gadgetry. and We call it tradecraft. And over the time, I've amassed... Uh, quite a collection of it, and it's, uh, it's a delight for pe people to be able to see it being actually used as it's depicted in the shows. 
Uh, and how did you come to be involved with the Americans? Uh, Joe contacted me actually before the first show, and he had a copy of my book, Spycraft, and he gave me the premise, and we talked about how we could make the show different, in addition to great writing and, and actors. But the idea was become the first show that actually incorporates real gadgets and real tradecraft and shows them used in the correct way, from how you pick a lock to how you search a room to just add that level of detail, which previously had not been done. Is it true, Keith, that Joe first contacted you by leaving a chalk mark on a post box <laughs> near your house? <laughs> well, you know, he and I prefer not to discuss those details. <laughs> it but it is job. true. You talk about you talk about lock picking. All of those details. We love talking to you about all of those specific things because they're never what you imagine, and they're they're rarely even what you've seen in past shows or movies. And you've got such unique detail for us. Well, and it's also a period show, so I don't know what it's like for you, Keith, to be kind of dealing in 80s stuff, 80s tradecraft, 80s gear, um, because I'm sure it's very specific and, it's, you know, things have changed remarkably since then, I'm, I'm convinced. How does it work to kind of get into that slightly, at this point, historical tech gear? Well, the, the 80s is kind of the classic decade. Actually, we refer to 1985 as the year of the spy because there were so many major spies arrested in the U.S. So it was, it was brilliant to set the show in that period in the early 80s, because it was probably the, the penultimate of human craft, where today we see that, that a lot of classic spy gear has gone to software, from software embedded in phones and other things. But in the 80s, it was still kind of that manual blend. You, you used the old-fashioned skills to pick a lock, and you had to hide the recorder in a, in a, in a briefcase with a great concealment. So it, it's, it's really the, the golden age of spying, and that's uh, why it's so nice to be able to put the show in that period. Keith, can you, can you tell us, for example, how you got the Lilliput? The Lilliput recorder is, is the recorder Joe referred to, and it was a, an amazingly small device, a little smaller than a pack of cigarettes. And the history of it, it was a KGB recorder that was, but instead of using tape, it used a thin strand of wire. And it goes to the fact that in the, the Russian and, and KGB philosophy, anytime they have a system set up to produce something, it's much more efficient for them to do that as opposed to, to stop and retool everything and shift technologies. So after World War II, Technology for recording was based on a thin strand of wire. Now, in the West, we quickly moved to, to tape, but the Russians never changed, but they kept developing the technology. So by the, the 80s, they were able to put a recorder that would record 92 hours of recording on a single spool of wire. And this is just phenomenal. It was a technology we thought it was obsolete, and in fact, they were accomplishing more with that than we could in the West with our small cassette tapes at the same time. There's also another epic callback in this uh, episode where Adderholt makes the connection with the dates the male robot was in the shop. 
and the death of the store's owner. Uh, I like that epic callback. Epic callback. <laughs> what passes on the Americans for an epic callback? <laughs> <laughs> well, when you wrote the interaction between Elizabeth and the mother, which was so fantastic and so memorable because it was played so well by Lois Smith, was that always in the play? Did you, when you wrote that, were you thinking, you know, a season later to how that would later come around? We weren't thinking of that specific turn. We did know we wanted to tell a longer story with the male robot. Mm. Uh, we actually thought we knew exactly where it was going, but it ultimately proved to be not that interesting to us. And then as this season unfolded, it seemed logical that uh, it's something someone there would be digging into and it became Adderhold. Wow. Um, in episode 411, um, we have a scene where um, Gabriel and Philip and Teresa get into an office and they search the office. Now, as I understand it, you also offer advice on things like how that search would have been accomplished, how they would have copied disks that were in that office. Uh, is that correct? And how do you how do you go about offering advice on, on process things like that? Well, it's, it, it, it all goes to the, the techniques we call tradecraft. Mm. And tradecraft is defined as the techniques, practices, and equipment used for clandestine behavior. And most intelligence services, given the same challenge, will ultimately arrive at the same basic techniques. So there's, there's a skill set to pick a lock, but there's also a specific skill set in techniques to search a room. And good services essentially do the same thing. And there's a method that you teach so that, that your behavior isn't random, but it's assigned and it's specific, and it lets you search all of a room given the time you have. Because ultimately, time is the limiting factor. Keith, you came up with some stuff that we used in the search for Episode 7 that was beyond anything I could have imagined, and yet, in retrospect, com completely obvious. And I remember you suggested we have somebody unscrew uh, electrical outlets to see what was hidden behind there. Uh, but you also had, uh, you suggested that we have somebody unrolling the cotton of unused wrapped tampons to see if anything was heading in there. But best of all, to use a hairdryer to melt ice through a strainer to see if something had been hidden in ice in the freezer. I'm almost willing to guarantee you've never seen that in a TV show or movie before. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's been in one before, but I've never seen it. So it, it gives us a fresh look, and the viewers watching that, and they're thinking both that that's interesting and mm. that it feels real. Mm. Even when you have these amazing techniques of, of searching and you know the technology of copying disks, you still need to get into that office. And one of the key jobs that these people have, these spies, these illegals, is con men. If they were going for money rather than information, they would be the world's greatest con artists. Like, to what extent are you even kind of thinking of their their grifting ability when you're writing their lines? Well, it's all about human interaction and human manipulation and human relationship. And in a way, this episode is the culmination of a story that started in the first episode with Gabriel saying we're working, here's a list of employees, let's try to find a yeah. way to get into that, to get him to level four, and then really kicked off when Elizabeth met Jung Hee in episode three. Those scenes were originally in episode two, but they, they mm. kind of 
seemed to get in the way in the editing room in episode two, so they slid into episode three. But now it's been almost a full season of mm -hmm. Elizabeth developing a relationship, which you then realize was all about finding a way to get into that office and to, uh, at the end of the day, just get him out of that office so they could do right. that search. Right. But, you know, we talked all season long about the fact that, in a sense, it's the first classic con mm. that we've done on the show. We've A lot of what they do has elements of that kind of work, and we've probably had other things on the show that are a little bit like that. But for that... a really big con, it's the first one. And it gave us, we were a little bit nervous about that. But on the other hand, we liked how we did it, which is almost the whole season was really the relationships and the character work. And the actual mm -hmm. kind of mechanics of finally doing it took up very little of the story. And as with many of the kind of more cr seemingly crazy things on the show, the con itself was very much based on real KGB cons wow. that they used to pull. Right. In the Soviet Union, they would and they pulled this successfully on very sophisticated, high level people like ambassadors mm. from foreign countries who were trained to be prepared to be taken advantage of by the KGB, trained in counterintelligence like that and still fell for it. So the KGB would actually honey trap them and then tell them that the women had gotten pregnant and killed themselves mm -hmm. or gotten pregnant, and had abortions and mm -hmm. were suicidal, all sorts of things like this. And it worked over and over again. Now, the classic thing was that people who fell for the con would, well, they were still stationed in Moscow, you know, do things the KGB mm -hmm. needed. And once they went back home, would have not continue to spy for them. So on one level, the KGB was ultimately frustrated. Mm -hmm. But it was often very successful for a time. Now, one of the things that I've always wondered, Keith, so in the Americans, we see Philip and Elizabeth sometimes getting, you know, it's interesting that you've pointed out that there are certain systems that various services will use, but sometimes they do get new pieces of equipment. Where would they typically receive a new recorder or a new device? Um, would that come from their handler, Gabriel, in this particular case? Or, or would there be whole systems for that? Well, one of the great, you hit on a very interesting point. And uh, you know, many of the, the examples in the show, you can look to the, the case that happened in 2010 of ghost stories, the the Anna Chapman and the spies in New York City, a classic case of Russian illegals, and the problems were the same. Once an illegal is in position in an operational country, it becomes a great problem to train them in new technology. So either you have to essentially take them out of the country on a, on a reason, which is risky, and give them training, or find something that the handler can himself train. And all of this would come through the handler. Now, the handler could, as in the 2010 case, be based at the Russian mission in New York City, but often it's a handler that we don't even know about that comes in from another country, such as in the 2010 case, it was uh, a illegal handler by the name of Christopher Metzos. His real name was Pavel Kotspustin, who came in only to deliver money to the illegals. So you never want to have an overt pathway to them because an illegal spy is probably the most valuable resource that an intelligence service could ever have, and they need to protect them at all costs. Right. Now, as I was thinking through, you know, some of the gear that's, that's been, um, you know, in the Americans, the stuff that stuck in my mind were the recorders, you know, the, the, the audio recorders, essentially, the, 
the the recorder in the clock in season one, the the briefcase in season three and four, you know, the thing that uh, Elizabeth put in Pastor Tim's office. But I'm sure that I'm there's a lot of of technology and gadgets that I'm just not thinking of because, as you pointed out, like a lockpick kit. That's actually also. Those are real ones that Keith sent us, the lockpick wow. kits, the, what was called the hotel kit that Philip used to listen through the walls at Annalise's uh, hotel room, right. and also the one used to pick the lock on the, uh, the senator's room. Mm-hmm. The and the, and the lockpick kit that was used last night in episode 11 mm-hmm. in Don's office came from Keith's collection. Huh. Uh, are there other things as well? as uh, So lockpicks and, and audio devices, is, is there other sort of technology or gadgetry that that is it's so kind of baked in that it it's I just don't even notice it almost well the uh, you know the umbrella of course the poison umbrella I don't think we got that for, I don't Keith, think Keith you have the actual poison umbrella <laughs> used in a Bulgaria but All that's right. of course a real right. a real Yogi prop Markov, in a sense right? yeah, yeah exactly yeah. well I, actually guys I have a functional example of the umbrella that I obtained in Moscow and well, it was I stand know, corrected. It was, a, <laughs> it was a training piece. I, I'd never suggest it was the piece they actually used in the in the, the assassination of Georgi Markov, but uh, it's very similar. Keith, I got to ask was, again: How did you get that? Well, I'm I've been able to establish a dialogue with with retired intelligence officers around the world, and it seems that if if we don't talk about politics, <laughs> that most of them are tech technical guys at heart, and they love the craft. And so we just limit our conversations to the craft of what they did, either good trade craft and bad trade craft. And over the decades, I've made made friends around the world. And so when we get together, we, we ignore what Mr. Putin may be doing at the moment, but we talk about how they accomplished something and what was the engineering development that they used. And so it makes for fascinating conversations. Okay, but still, that leaves open the question... After that fascinating conversation, after a few drinks and dinner, they say, oh, you want the poison umbrella? Sure, take, take it. <laughs> Absolutely. Put it in the spy I'm, museum. I'm pretty sure he's not going to answer this question. <laughs> uh, ultimately, ultimately, everyone has something they usually want in life. And if you can find something that that person wants, from a hunting rifle to, uh, to a weekend uh, at a spa, you can usually kind of find something of value that maybe they'd rather have than that dusty old item sitting in their closet. So we try to make everybody happy. I think, I think what the, the answer boils down to, capitalism. Um, what's the favorite piece of uh, technology or gadgetry or, or anything that's been of yours that's been used in the show? Oh, I, I love them all. Uh, <laughs> I think the show's done a really good job with the clandestine cameras, with ah. the spy cameras, the way that they've been hidden. Because the KGB understood that, that cameras were used for four specific reasons. To photograph people, to photograph actions that they're doing, to photograph places, and to photograph things. So we use cameras to photograph documents and essentially to photograph people. And the KGB had some very sophisticated cameras, but also the concealments or the camouflage that they hid them in. And uh, the the show's been, uh, when they have a need, we try to say, well, if we're a Russian intelligence officer, this is how we would solve the problem. And happily, we have the, the real gadgets to draw from. Yeah, we had a beautiful one in a jacket buttonhole. Mm-hmm. We had one in a briefcase. It's it's a different part of what you started talking about. We had a, we used a beautiful micro dot in uh, season one, I think. We've got one in the purse. 
that was used yeah, one at, purse. at the yeah. end of the season. A beautiful micro dot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it actually is. It came out very visually uh, gorgeous on uh-huh, screen. Uh-huh. So it's not just my shared enthusiasm with Keith. It, it actually looked good. It's a fact. <laughs> it's a fake. proven it's a fact. fact. It was beautiful. <laughs> Keith, uh, any of, do any of the um, the devices uh, that we that from this era that we see in the Americans are any of them still used, or has it all been replaced by developments in technology and the fact that we all have a camera and a phone in our pockets now? Well, some have certainly been replaced, but uh, many of the functional pieces, such as lockpicks, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, a, a lock is just a temporary barrier that's waiting to be opened. <laughs> and the, the the technology to do it has been around since they came up with pin tumbler locks. So the skills developed in World War II mm-hmm. certainly would still work today because the design of the lock hasn't changed. Uh, cameras have moved more to smartphones, uh, but the need for recording the functional need is still there. It's just the technology because of microchips and the ability to store data in small places, it makes listening to devices more insidious. Mm-hmm. But some of the practical things, microdots would still work today. Uh, people often forget. Now, a microdot is the photo reproduction of a page of text to a size on a piece of film that's less than one millimeter. And it's one of the classic pieces of spyware, and it's one of the most insidious things to find once it's hidden. And I remember talking with the guys at the show about how the Russians would hide this little tiny speck of film. And I am still amazed that the real Russian solution, if they wanted to send a microdot across the world or in someone's hand, they would put it in a bottle of pulp orange juice. It's <laughs> orange juice with pulp. And you have a tiny little speck of film, and they had a technique to make it invisible. They dipped it in diluted iodine, which, ble- which bleached it, made it absolutely clear. I still can't understand how you could recover this film once it got to its destination out of a quart of pulped orange juice. They had the ability to do it. Wow. And what about the signaling? One of the things that we see in the Americans is, you know, Philip and Elizabeth receiving signals by shortwave radio or, um, you know, getting messages in various ways. Is is any of that still in use? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, what we call the, um, the, the, the messages, we call it one-way voice link. Mm. So it's on certain frequencies, and actually they emanate from Cuba. They broadcast every day. They broadcast shortwave signals. They're just as numbers. And you know the frequency, but they change every 20 minutes on the 20-minute on point. And if an agent wants to receive them, he simply knows or she knows that this is the time, this is the frequency. They're always repeated, and they're random numbers. And we worked out, in fact, one of the shows, we showed the system for converting these random numbers using a one-time pad mm-hmm. to ability to decipher it for the agent. And it's very, very secure and still in use. By the way, that reminds me of, of something that Keith told us about that we didn't use, but we always sort of think ruefully about mm-hmm. if we had. We, I think it was a good decision not to because it seems it would not have been believable. But at every Soviet residentura, and we have, of course, the residentura in the show, one of the centerpieces in the sort of middle of the residentura, they had a working bar. 
alcohol is integrated into the work of an intelligence officer, and especially because they may work for long periods of time, it is understood that they'll have a drink in the middle of the night as they keep working. So a bar in the Residentur, which is certainly one of the most secret places imaginable inside a Russian embassy, is, is together. The other thing I thought was pretty interesting is the fact that they have a, a coat, little coat racks and that anyone going in the station is not supposed to wear external clothing. So you're supposed to take off your outside clothing and put on a bathrobe or a jogging suit to go inside. It's because they're worried about someone else putting a listening device and you may inadvertently take it with your coat inside the residentura. I want all those spies in bathrobes. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the no. Playboy Club, actually. <laughs> the bar and the bathrobes. Well, I think, I think it's, it's interesting, perhaps, yeah. but you can look at it inversely. When they are worried about something, it's likely because they know of a capability. So likely it's a capability they're employing and they're simply intuitively coming up with a defense against it. That's it for this week. Thanks again to Joel Fields, Joe Weisberg and H. Keith Melton for joining us to talk about episode 411, Dinner for Seven. Come back next week to hear us talk about episode 412, A Roy Rogers in Franconia. I'm June Thomas. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. This show is part of the Panoply Network. <laughs>